Well, I'm turning once again back to our text for this morning, which is Matthew 13, and just want to draw your attention to two verses, and we'll be uh, dealing with each of these verses in some form this morning. It may end up being in a kind of a summary type statement, or uh, we'll get through it, but I want to draw your attention to verses 10 and 11. This, of course, is a question being asked as the Lord is delivering the parable of the sower. Uh, We spent uh, the... Our total time last week uh, studying the parable of the sower, what the, the sower and how the four, it's the response of the four different hearers and how they respond to the word. So really between verses 10 through 17 is the Lord explaining the hearers. He's explaining how and why some receive and some do not. Uh, so very powerful statements that are being made here. Verse 10, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And I truly believe that the disciples were perplexed here. They were truly wondering, why is the Lord speaking in such terms? Uh, Why is He just using these truths which are hard to be understood? Their question was not a question of doubt as much as it was of perplexity. Uh, What exactly, Lord, is the purpose for why you speak to them in parables? Well, he answers them, and he answers and says unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I want to deal with our subject this morning. It's really an expression that's found in our text, and it simply is, to them it is not given. You'll notice that our Lord's expression here in verse 11 as He answers them, He answers them without any qualifying statements as to why He does what what He is doing. And He doesn't give them any real preparation for what He's getting ready to say. But what He says is powerful. It also demonstrates not only the sovereignty of God, but even the providence that God has in the hearing of the Word over man. He says clearly, the reason why I do and I speak and I say the parables is because there is a difference that is to those who are to know and those who will not know. To them, it is given. It is not given. To you, it is given. Contrary statements. To one group, it's been given to you. To the other side, it's not been given to you. And he says, that's the answer why I speak in parables. Now, we might stop there and we might be perplexed because that doesn't seem to give us the full understanding of why would, first of all, why would there be some he doesn't give it to and why would there be some that he does give it to? Could God possibly be speaking about something which has angered so many people for so many decades? Is it possible that Jesus himself could be dealing with the very doctrine that is so hated by so many. Could he truly be a supporter and a preacher of the doctrine of election? Could he possibly be? Is it possible that the greatest accusations that have been thrown against people who who believe the doctrine of election is to say, our Lord never taught election, yet this passage drips with election. This passage drips with a choosing. It drips with a reality that there are those who have been given to know and those who have not been given to know. 
Now, of course, it is perplexing. And I would tell you this morning that you might be perplexed. You might even say today, all right, I can see where we're going with this. But think about the environment here. Think about what we learned last week. Now, we don't have time today to go over all the previous verses. I would encourage you uh, either to revisit your notes today or maybe go back and listen to the live stream or the audio of it. But remember, he was talking about who the sower is. And we learned that Jesus is the sower. He is the one that sows the seed. And I mentioned to you how oftentimes this passage has been twisted and manipulated to try to turn us all into the ultimate sower, which we are to sow precious seed. We are to speak the gospel. We are to to tell people about the Lord. But ultimately, the sower is the one who sows the seed. I gave you numerous illustrations of how even farming and, and, and uh, agriculture in Jesus' day was much different than the way we plant and plow today, where today there's a, a very straight line and the seeds are carefully planted in rows so that everything comes up nicely. And remember I mentioned to you that when the sower went out in those days, the seed was sown first and then the ground was tilled up so that the seed would fall on rocky places, on thorny places, but then some seed would fall on good ground. And we made mention that there was no preparation made by the ground. The ground did not make preparation to receive the seed. Just like you and I, when we were brought to Christ, it was not because of our preparation. It was not because we prepared the ground to receive the seed. It is because in the, the annals of time, some reason, some why, God chose us before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is the most hated doctrine. And I would say this, not by the world, but in the church. There are churches that hate the doctrine of election. They hate it. Because it says, I should have the right to prepare my own ground. The problem is, you would never prepare your ground to receive good seed. You have no desire to receive that seed. The only reason we did receive the seed is because it fell on the good ground that God had in fact put there. If you understand the doctrine of election, you fully understand that the most comforting doctrine is election. You're either on one side of it or the other. There is no halting between two opinions. You either love election or you hate it. Now, you might not fully understand it, but you're one of two. You either hate it or you love it. It was the, for me, it was the last domino, so to speak, to fall. It was the doctrine that I hated the most. I hated it because I was offended that my free will was not the ultimate cause and source of my salvation. Man still hates the reality that he's not the author and finisher of his faith. That's why they don't like the word phrase, regeneration precedes faith. Election is that last domino to often fall. Now our Lord is not often the one that's credited with preaching election, it's often Paul. When we talk about election, those that accuse you of standing for the doctrine of election will say, well, you're just standing on Romans 9, and Romans 9 is the only part of Scripture that talks about election. Now, I'll just tell you, that's about as false as false can be. It's the straw man. It's the thing in which we say, Romans 9, we know, Esau have I loved, Jacob have I hated. You know, the, 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 what's happening, loving and hating, I hate them, he loves. It's the reality, Jacob I love, Esau I hate. Well, that's so. If that was the only place, we might be able to make that argument. 
But even our Lord here is indicating that it is, I am speaking in parables for the very reason that it is given to know by some and there are others who it's been not, not been given for them to know. Now, maybe the crowd had also complained. Maybe the crowd, we don't see this in Scripture, so we don't want to add to this. Maybe the crowd was saying, and they came to his disciples and they said, what is your, what is your teacher talking about here? We don't understand what he's saying. He, he's talking about seed and he's talking about ground and he's talking about seed falling on good ground and thorny ground and stony ground. Maybe they didn't understand fully. But one thing is certain here, the apostles did not have an answer for them. In other words, it was not the apostles that turned to those who were asking the question. They actually had to ask the Lord, Lord, why are you speaking this way? You realize there are truths that you do not have an answer for. I hope we understand that. You are not a theological dictionary. Now, we, some of us think we are. I've been guilty of this. As a pastor, you ask me a question, I'm supposed to know every answer. One of the most greatest relief off my shoulders was when I came to the realization I'm not supposed to have every answer and that I could actually look you in the face and say, you know what, I don't know. It's the greatest theological answer I've ever given is I don't know. Oh, but that makes you look weak. So be it. You're asking me because you don't know. I'm telling you I don't know. Because there's a reality, there are things about God we don't know. Isn't that profound? I don't know why some are elected and some are not. That doesn't make the doctrine of election false. I don't understand the purpose behind trials and tragedies and struggles. All I know is that the Bible says that it's for our good and for His glory. But that's not telling you why. So maybe that's what the disciples were thinking. Maybe they didn't even know what he was driving at. Remember, the disciples spent a lot of time with him. They were perplexed, so they went to him and asked him themselves, what exactly, Lord, are you talking about? So really, our first heading today is that the doctrine of election. Now again, we're not going to go into all the ins and outs of this. But notice that as the question is being asked, There's obviously something about Jesus' preaching, something about his teaching that has caught the attention to where people are asking specifically, why teach this way? Now, his purpose and why he teaches in parables isn't readily apparent until we start to read through a little bit. The answer that Jesus gives them, I will tell you, comes as a shock to people who do not hold to the doctrine of election because they will begin to tell you that the only reason he's doing this is because there are those who want to receive it and those who do not want to receive it. And that's his answer. That's what they'll say. That the ones it's been given to are the ones who just by their own free will have determined, I'm going to receive it, I'm going to take it. But the reality is, is this is actually a shocking statement. There are portions of scripture that we refer to as the hard sayings of Christ This one is not often lumped in with those hard sayings, like the hard sayings of uh, eating his blood, drinking his blood and eating his flesh, which if, if you're not a believer, you just say, well, that's cannibalistic. But if you're a believer, you know what drinking his blood and eating his flesh means. You know that that's not about actually eating and drinking his, eating his body and drinking his blood. You know there's a spiritual truth there. That's what the parables are. 
But if you don't think this is a hard saying, I don't know what you think a hard saying is. Because his answer to why you speak in parables is clearly because it's given unto you to know. He's talking to the disciples now. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. The ones who are not understanding it, the ability to understand it has not been given. Now again, we have the idea that that somehow is unfair. That God is somehow being unjust if He gives to some and withholds from others. I will tell you, that's, all that is is a human mentality. That's, that's, all, that's 100% human. That's our intellect. That's our intelligence that says, listen, it's unfair for God to pick and choose and choose some and not choose others. God must be fit. He must be mean. He must be angry. He must just be a terrible God that He would not give everybody equal opportunity to hear and know. That's a false accusation against God. God has within His right to do as He pleases. He had it within His right to not save any. He had it within His right to say no one is getting into the kingdom. And if you're entering into the kingdom of God, if you are in the kingdom of God, you only have one thing and one person to boast in in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if it's not for the doctrine of election, you're not entering those pearly gates. You're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. And that means you have nothing to boast in except the cross and say, I give God all the glory. Now, this is not going to be a popular statement, but free will makes us very prideful. Now, that's the accusation against us that believe election is that we're the prideful ones because you're the few chosen. If that's the argument, they don't understand election. (laughs) None of us, if you have a right view of election, are bragging. You hear me? You're not bragging in your election. You're not walking around saying, hey, hey, I'm one of the chosen. Mm Mm-mm. If you truly understand election, you are laying prostrate on the floor and you are saying, why me, Lord? See, there's a big difference. When we are the master of our salvation, we tend to take credit for something good we've done. Now, the answer that Jesus gives them is certainly a shocking one. But according to what Matthew writes here, Again, the emphasis is on given and not given. Our Lord's words in that, those two verses cannot be more clear. Given and not given. Therefore, I speak. I speak unto them in parables. Right? I speak unto them in parables because it is given to you to know the mystery. So we see that this is a very difficult saying, but certainly the doctrine of election is here. There's absolutely positively no way we can ignore it. We can't manipulate it out. Uh, Some, again, some people think that the doctrine of election is only in the letter of Paul. Some people are are, uh, at a place where they will say, you would not believe in the doctrine of election if John Calvin didn't tell you to believe in it. John Calvin has nothing to do with my belief in the doctrine of election. Zero. Zero. It's it's biblical. It's biblical. 
That's been the argument that's been made towards me has been, well, the only reason you believe it is because you've been reading all these books. When I came to the understanding of the domino of the doctrine of election to fall, it had been at the end of a result of actually trying to put away all presuppositions, taking away all my commentary, taking away all my books, sitting down with the Bible and reading, and suddenly the, Bible, the verses that I'm reading, you couldn't escape them. You could not escape them. And the reality is, is that when we read Scripture and we don't come with any presuppositions that are, that are pre put there by someone else, the problem is we can't do that. <clears throat> We've all been influenced. We've all been, we all have presuppositions when we come to the Scripture. Your presuppositions are based upon what you've learned, what you've been taught. I could understand some of the things about the doctrines of grace. I came into very, I could understand total depravity. It wasn't hard for me to grasp that one. It wasn't hard to, to, to grasp perseverance. And again, remember, that quote-unquote tulip that gets such a bad rap was in response to an Arminian teaching to correct the Arminian free will. Everybody says it the wrong way. They say, Calvin came up with this weirdo teaching. No. It was in direct response to what had happened with the Arminians were teaching. So if you take it and you look at free will and you put it right next to what people call the tulip, which we'll talk about that at one day, that may not be titled. Those may not be titled exactly right, but it doesn't matter. Tulip or no tulip, I'm not standing on a tulip. I'm standing on the Bible. We can get these things out of order. I'm going down a rabbit trail. Let me, let me get back to the text here. Important rabbit trail, but we've got we to move on. So if you pay attention closely to what the Lord is saying here, He pulls into full view that clearly some people are permitted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Notice a mystery is something that was previously unknown. But others are not permitted to understand. So those who have been given the ability to understand are those who have been given those new hearts, those who have been converted. They're able to understand the things of God so that when further instruction is given, they're able to comprehend those truths. But there is this doctrine that is right in front of us that says, but to them it is not given. Some do not understand these truths. Now, is it because these people don't have eyes? Is it because these people don't have ears that they don't see it and they don't understand it and they don't hear it? It's not about the functioning of the human eye and about the functioning of the human ear. For example, my, my assumption is, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not overstepping here, is that all of you have functioning eyes today. You can see what's going on. You can actually look at your Bible. You can, your, your eyes are functioning. Now, you may be like me. You may need these things now. But you can look down and you can see it. And you can read it. And it's not because you're blind. It's not because you physically can't see. You hear my voice. Some of us may hear it more loudly than others. But you hear it. But yet the prophecy we learned about last week, which will come back again today, is about Isaiah 6, that Isaiah's mission would not be so that eyes would be opened and ears would be unstopped, but that they would be closed. Isaiah's ministry was to close eyes, not open them. In that high and holy throne room, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and holy and lifted up, and he says, 
Who will go for me? And he says, here I, here I am, send me. You think he's going out on an evangelistic crusade to open everybody's eyes? No, he says, your mission is, is you're going to go out and my preaching is actually going to close the eyes of people and stop up their ears. We're going to look at it. You're going to see, is that what that really says? That's 100% what it says. Imagine if your ministry was not to open eyes, but to close them. Difficult to handle, isn't it? But it's biblical. At this point, someone might raise an objection and say, wait a minute, this is not about election. This is simply about the disciples and because they've been with Jesus, they've been exposed to His teaching, they have an understanding of who He is and He's talking just to this little group of these 12 men and He says these 12 men, uh, they, they have the privilege of being with Him. I'm going to give you that to one point. What are you going to do with Judas Iscariot? Is he one of the twelve? Then if it was just about being with Jesus, then why isn't Judas Iscariot in heaven today? Because he wasn't a believer. People would say, well, you know, Judas made his own bed. Jesus preached every day and Judas said, I will not believe. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in prophecy that long before the foundation of the world, Judas was chosen to be the betrayer. There was not going to be another Judas. It's, it's the foolishness that we get in our, our, some, of our, sadly, some of our Sunday school teaching about trying to teach our kids, hey, don't be a Judas. Don't be Judas Iscariot. Well, you can't be Judas Iscariot because there was one Judas Iscariot and he was ordained before the foundation of the world that he was going to be the betrayer. He wasn't getting out of that. We say, well, that's not fair. Judas was chosen to be a betrayer. I argue with God's authority in that matter. Well, that's great. You can argue with it, but you have no ground to stand on. You can say it's unfair. You can also say well, it was unfair that God didn't give Pharaoh a chance. You got another problem. The Bible does say not only did God harden his heart, but it also says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Folks, you can't have it both ways. See, the reality is, is yes, God hardens heart. God does close eyes. God does stop up ears. But man also hardens himself. And he refuses to hear. He refuses. He comes to a church and he hears the gospel and he hears it and he says, I'm not going to believe anything that preacher says. I'm not going to believe any word that I say. You're hardening your own heart. And he disregards the command to repent and believe. You see, the reality here is, is that each person is coming with a supposition of what they think Jesus meant. But if we go on in the verses, we see that Jesus begins to explain himself fully exactly what he's talking about. So we continue in this first heading of the doctrine of election. Look at verse 11. We've already talked about it. It's given unto you to know. The usual reason that Jesus used the parable was to make a truth clear. It was, meant to it was meant to grab our attention. It was meant to place upon our minds what we heard. The parable was often used to do that. But in this instant, and you can see this, our Lord is using this parable speech to announce a judgment. He's using it to declare a judicial sentence which had been pronounced long before Jesus even came on the scene. As a matter of fact, this prophecy is so old 
There was a prophecy announced on the nation of Israel, specifically, before they were even a nation, and before they were even unworthy of His goodness. In other words, the prophecy predates the people who would rebel. Does everybody understand that? So wait a minute. God knows, again, here comes back down to the free will people. The only reason God does what He does is because He knows how people are going to respond. (laughs) That's what free will says. God saves who He saves because He knew who would respond to Him. That's the elect. The problem is there's no biblical basis for that. It's always about a choice and it's always about God doing the choosing. Man doesn't choose God for himself. Nowhere in Scripture do you see man alone choosing God for himself. He's always, it's always a divine purpose is being put on him before he chooses. All the way back to Moses. Even further beyond that. People are willing to accept God's choice in every area except salvation. (laughs) God, you can be be sovereign in my finances. You can be sovereign in my life. You can be sovereign in who I marry. You can be sovereign in this, this, and this. But you talk about sovereignty and salvation and people say, "Uh uh-uh, no way. No, no. But the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. Well, that's just, that's just in certain books. That's just in Jonah. No, it's all throughout Scripture. So usually he would use a parable, and he would use par- and We're going to see this as we move through Matthew. Not all parables had the exact same purpose as to why he was using them. He tells them, I'm using this in this specific instance to show to you those who have been given to know and those who have not been given to know. To, our own, to His own disciples, our Lord explains the parable, but He doesn't go on to explain it to the unbelievers. The parables are not meant to be in the sense that we use them as an evangelistic sermon. Although there are principles we can use. Why? Because the unbeliever doesn't understand a parable. The unbeliever turns the parable into just some kind of a story where we try to give it meaning. That's why when you study God's Word and you study God's Word, there ought to be an authority of what is actually the Bible says, not what does this mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? You want to see something go off the rails? Do that. Throw an opinion out to 50 people and say, tell me what this Scripture means. You're going to get 50 different answers. It has a meaning. That's proper biblical interpretation. That's proper exposition. That's why when you come to church, you hear me go right through the Scripture because that's how you interpret the Bible. But if anybody in this multitude of people, if any of them became anxious to know what, what, what does your Lord mean, you don't see them coming. You don't see people... Again, not trying to be irreverent, but you don't see people running out to the ship where he was and saying, I want to get saved. I want to be converted. But you do see the disciples asking the questions, why are you speaking in parables to them? Clearly, Jesus says it's to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But those who would have rejected him and those who even throughout history who've rejected him, even while listening to a parable, you're going to hear it 
but you're not really going to hear it. You're going to see it, but you're not going to perceive the meaning of it. Folks, understand something today that if you understand the mysteries and understand some of the things of God, that's what we refer to as a gift of sovereign grace. That's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a gift because our Lord says it's given to you. But to them it is not given. Those are very sobering words. It is not for me to determine who it's been given to and who it's not been given to. There is a group of people that call themselves, and some of you are familiar with this term, they call themselves hyper-Calvinist. And a hyper-Calvinist is basically just that. They believe, they don't, they, don't believe, they don't believe in any missionary work. They don't believe in evangelism. They don't believe in that because they said you can't control anything. And you'll know almost as if all the people who have been given will have a mark on them and everybody who doesn't have a mark, you're out. It's not for us to know. That's why whoever walks in the door of this church, when they hear the Bible opened and they hear it preached, I am not selectively aiming in certain directions. I'm not looking at one and saying, you really need this, you don't need it, you need it. Because the reality is, I don't know how many of you really know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. I don't really know where your heart is. I only know what you've professed to be. Often, and it has happened numerous times, accusations, we preach the gospel too much here. It's amazing, isn't it? Why would you preach the gospel to a room full of believers on Sunday morning? Because we're told to. And because there's no way of knowing where you really are. You're never going to have me tell you you're saved. It's not my right. It's not my authority. Because the only thing I could ask you is what? What did you do? What you did has nothing to do with it. You know if God saved you. The evidence is the presence of the Spirit. Nobody's running to the boat to say, Jesus, how can we be saved? Again, I'll, I won't go too far down this. It's also the fallacy of how the ark gets preached. <laughs> Most of your Sunday school books for kids are so warped in this and you don't even know what you're sending your kids to. There was no grand invitation to anybody who wanted to come to come. That boat was made for eight people. <laughs> you, there, there's absolutely no way around this. People say, no, it's, I saw this movie and people were back. No, no. People took, especially the, the most recent Hollywood production of Noah, people actually think that that's biblical. I'm like... Oh, wait, you haven't even read your Bible because if you're taking that Hollywood production of Noah as what actually happened, and you, you'd be surprised how many Christians are like, yeah, I saw this great movie. It's a great Christian movie. Yeah, problem is it's not Christian because it's not biblical. It's nothing biblical in it. And you say, wait a minute. He only made that boat for eight people. There were only eight people? Yeah, he declares this is made for these people. How many people got on that ark? Eight. All the other ones didn't get on because their own free will didn't get them on there. No, he flooded the entire earth and he saved eight. That's not fair. You'll have to take it up with God about its fairness. 
It's a humbling truth. See what election's doing to you? It's humbling you. If, if pride is welling up in you right now, you're not hearing what's actually being said. You're actually sinking. You're, it's contrary to the new church movement. Your self-worth is kind of falling through the floor. And you're saying, well, that's, that's an encouraging church right there. They took away my self-worth. That's what needs to die. <laughs> the problem is our self-worth is what's making us think we know better than God. Remember, I've asked the question, when do you die to self? When did you die to self? Because yourself is what's getting in the way. Yourself, if you were left to it, is what would doom you to hell because you would never choose God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That includes your throat. Oh, no, not my throat. I'm, not, I'm, I'm the one that would be a seeker of God. Nobody would seek. Humbling truths, salvation, and the knowledge of where our salvation comes from. These are humbling things. It's given to us as the Lord's will and according to the Lord's timing. There is such a thing as what's been said by so many Puritan preachers of old. There is such a thing, a thing as distinguishing grace. And then notice verse 12. For whoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. So as we continue thinking about this doctrine here, we continue thinking about what's being taught here. And we see that at this point, those who have any understanding of spiritual truth, if you have been given, the parables are making it more clear to you. When you willfully live in the dark, when you willfully say, I want nothing to do with God, even when the presence of the light is around you, when you willfully say, I don't want God, even when the light is there, you're not going to see anything. A person who simply says, listen, I don't really want to know. Every one of you at some time has had somebody either in actual words or implied say to you, I don't care what you know. I don't care what you're talking about. I want nothing to do with it. Now that's where we immediately blame God and we say this is all of God. No, this is man's depravity. This is man's total depravity, which says, again, total depravity mean, doesn't mean he's as bad as he could be. Okay? Remember that. As bad as the world is, and as sinful as things are, as horrific as we see things happen in the world, do you realize man's not as bad as he possibly could be? We say, well, God just, God did it, so I have no responsibility. You have a responsibility to hear the word. You are held accountable for every sermon you've heard. You're held accountable for every word of the scripture you've read. You're held accountable to what you do with it. And as I've said, and we say every single service, come to Christ. Come to the Lord, say, Lord, help thou my unbelief. Some will say, I won't do it. The light is all around you. You see with your functioning eyes, you hear with your functioning ears, but you say, I won't. Then do not blame God when you wake up after death in hell. The reality is, it's a command to repent and believe. So repent. 
Believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe on Christ. Don't walk to Christ. Run to Christ. It's the person who walks into a place. School just started. Walks into a classroom. Sits down. Has books in front of them. And gets to the end of the year and says, I learned nothing. That's not the teacher's fault. Now I know in our enabling society it is. Every time a student fails, it's a teacher's fault. You tell a parent, nope, Johnny doesn't care. Not my Johnny. Oh, Johnny's, Johnny's depraved. Oh, so's Lily. You must be a bad teacher. I'm going to the board. No, they don't want to learn. Don't blame the teacher. Don't blame the system. Blame the depravity of man that says, I don't want it. And the reality here is that man who is willfully ignorant, and by the way, ignorance is willful. Ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is willful. I don't want to know. If I can tell you how many times I've talked to unbelievers and I've asked them, said, look, take your, I'm, I'm going to give you a Bible. I'm going to give you a Bible. I, just, I want you to go home and I want you to read John. I don't want that. You're willfully ignorant. Why did I give them the book of John? Because it shows a man, a woman, how to believe. It shows that it opens up the eyes. I'm allowing the Word of God to do the work. I don't give them the, net, the latest Christian bestseller or even the most well-renowned Puritan book or preacher of old. I tell them to read the Scriptures. Spiritual truth to the person who's willfully ignorant, spiritual truth actually blinds them instead of opening their eyes. Think about that for a moment. If you ignorantly, willfully say, I don't want to learn, then spiritual truth, instead of actually opening your eyes, it actually causes you to be blind. That's exactly what Isaiah and his ministry was. Look at verse 13. Therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they see and see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. This was the Lord's reason as to why He spoke in parables. They couldn't understand spiritual things, so He did not give them understanding. They didn't really see what they thought they saw. They didn't really hear what they thought they heard. I can't really explain this other than in a human perspective. When we think we saw something, an eyewitness account, we think we saw it only to find out our memory was not real, was not real good, right? We say, oh, I saw this. Two other witnesses come up and say, no, I saw this. And then it's like the old game of telephone where one person says something, tells the next person, another next person. By the time you get to the 10th person, the story's changed. That's a crude illustration. But they're not seeing what they think they're seeing and they're not hearing what they think they're hearing because the reason is, is they've not been given the ability to know, but I have given the ability for you to know. In other words, no matter how plain Jesus would have made this, and that's why even later on, and we'll look at this next week, is when he explains the parable, he's explaining the parable to the disciples, not to the gathered crowd. You see, to those who are willfully ignorant, those who do not want anything to do with God, no matter how plain you make the teaching, the more confused and perplexed you'll become. People say, you know what, you can't have preaching anymore. You need to make the Bible relevant and understandable. 
said by no real Christian ever. (laughs) Nobody who's truly saved says, I need the Bible clearer. I need it plainer. You know why? Because your understanding is not coming from plain teaching. It's coming from the, the Spirit who's giving you illumination to understand. You don't need watered down, horrible translations of Scripture so that you can understand better. We're watering down Bible to like a kid's book. You've got translations, and if I offend you, sorry. You've got translations like the message. It's not even a translation. It's a horrible piece of literature. Throw it out. Well, it's paraphrasing. It it makes it simpler for me. What happened to trusting God to give you understanding? The reality here is, is it's not about plain teaching. It's not about making it more relevant. They were in the condition they were in because that's where they wanted to be. Listen, you could, you could point people to the very, and the Apostle Paul makes mention of this in Romans. He said, the very creation screams, there's a God. That means man's without excuse. Unsaved people see God's work of grace in people. They deny it. They see providence in their own life. God gives common grace, and he, he even gives the farmer, like we talked about last week, he gives them a full crop And they say, look what I did. They won't even give God credit to what had to be a providential act of God. How they they were able to grow a harvest in the middle of a drought. Because God God gave it to them. But yet they won't hear it because they don't want to hear it. Jesus specifically, as he goes on, he says, the reason I speak is because they see not and they hear not. And then he says, the reason this is happening, and this is the fulfillment part, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. This is a reference back to that sixth chapter of Isaiah, and it's the second heading. We're not going to get as far as I want to get today, but we're going to stop here in just a moment with the declaration of judgment by the prophet Isaiah. I want you to keep in mind that what Jesus was saying is that what you're seeing, those that have been given and those who have not been given, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 6. What's happening is what was prophesied in that text. Jesus was using these parables to come to this very conclusion right before our eyes. Over and over again in this gospel, we see Matthew connecting what Jesus is doing with Old Testament prophecies. This, Matthew doesn't have to do the connecting because Jesus actually quotes Scripture himself. Well, what is he actually saying? Well, if you turn back quickly, Isaiah 6 shows us exactly again. We read this last week. After Isaiah had witnessed what he saw, right? In verse 8 of Isaiah 6, it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. When I was growing up, the only context, and I kid you not, the only context I ever heard this verse and chapter preached in was with regard to missionary endeavors. 
That's it. And being told, why won't you go? Why won't you say, here am I, send me? Now, if, our missionary, if missionary endeavors was the reason, you're using a verse that actually is going to re- work in reverse of your missionary endeavor because his, his ministry is to close eyes. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Don't missionaries go onto the field to open eyes of people? But look what he says. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. He says, go and tell them what you're hearing, you're not really hearing, and what you think you understand, you don't really understand. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. And look at this little word. Now your, your translation may not have this little word. Lest, L-E-S-T, which is just a old English word for unless they see with their eyes. In other words, lest, unless you do this, they'll see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, Isaiah speaking, Lord, how long? How long is this going to be the case? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. We see very clearly here how the sixth chapter of Isaiah and even what's happening here, this declaration of judgment by Isaiah, we see it's constantly quoted in the New Testament and it clearly sets forth, yes, in the true context, the doom of Israel who is guilty. Now, here's been my problem with the argument of we don't believe in election and choosing except when it comes to Israel. Do you know the same people who say that it's not fair for God to choose and not choose Gentiles will say this to you, but it's fair for them for God to choose which part of Israel would be saved and which one wouldn't? You realize that there were the nation of Israel, they were chosen out for judgment. So why do we not have the same attitude towards the Gentiles? Do we think the Gentiles are somehow better? The reality is, is that the penalty of sin is death, right? So those who refuse to see truth, those who do not want truth, are punished by being unable to see. So if you say, I don't want to see, I don't care about the things of God, then you will be left in the penalty of your sin, which is death. One day... You will die and you will step out into eternity and there will not be a second chance. There will not be a time to reconsider. There will not be time as you're walking and you're going through the portals of eternity for you to stop and say, okay, now I believe. You still won't see. But again, the refusal to even desire. Again, what Jesus is doing, again, almost word for word, verse 15, for this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. They had deadened their own conscience. They had deadened their own desire to hear. When Isaiah made these statements. Remember, this is the key to understand Isaiah 6. Isaiah was overcome by the weight of his own sin and his unworthiness. 
Isaiah was not standing before the Lord saying, Lord, I'm the best prophet you've got. As a matter of fact, it talks about him speaking with unclean lips and his, his, his lips most likely were burned by the coals that were off the altar. When he said all these things, when he said that, he was saying that as a broken man, a man who understood the depravity of his own sin. He was not being sent out as a conquering missionary. He was being sent out to deliver a judgment. It's just like Jeremiah. Misuse of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of doom who was basically told, Jeremiah, you're going to go out into the world, you're going to preach, and you're not going to see a single convert. And I'm using you as a mouthpiece to announce judgment. See, we forget that a lot of the prophets were not about, hey, come to Jesus. They were about, I'm announcing judgment to you, you who have deadened your faculties. And yet, Isaiah replied, when the questions asked, who shall go for us? And he said, send me. Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet that day, but the instructions that God gave him were, of course, to go out and to preach judgment. And so we understand, imagine being Isaiah, being given the task of telling the people this, look, but don't really see. Hear, but don't understand. Can you imagine being the prophet that's called to make people's hearts dull, to clog their ears, to cover their eyes so that they would not understand? God was sending Isaiah as a prophet of judgment because God was pouring out judgment on those who refused to see the truth. And we're going to stop there today for the sake of time, but I want you to think about, we've covered a lot today. And we're going to go on next week and we'll pick up in verse 16 and we'll turn the narrative here and we'll talk now how Jesus then says, but blessed are your eyes. Clearly now we're going to move for those who it was not given to, to those it was given, and we'll attach that to the explanation of the parable. But the command of the Bible is always the same. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, don't darken your heart. Don't be worried about getting out of here to get to your lunch. Don't be worried about the things of the day. If you are unconverted, you have not repented of your sins, you've not believed in Christ Jesus, I am pleading with you, I'm begging with you, run to Christ. If you've never taken this seriously, I'm begging you, take it seriously today. If you've never thought about your eternal soul, you've never thought about where you would go, again, I'm not manipulating your emotions. We're not going to sing 10 verses of a hymn to try to manipulate you to come up here. Run to Christ if you know that you are unconverted. Say, Lord, give me eyes to see. Lord, give me ears to hear. Is it amazing what God has done and yet we won't come to Him? And yet we'll blame God for not being concerned about us. Not, God doesn't care about us. God is unfair. God is unjust. And yet we'll sit in our deadness and we'll, we'll say, I don't want it. And then we'll blame God when we die and we go to hell. Run to Christ. Run quickly. We're going to finish singing the hymn this morning, Mercies Anew, hymn number 84. We'll sing that hymn together and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. For the believer...